Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. Excuse my gravelly voice, but let's talk about flow state. Yeah, I was on um, Instagram the other day and I saw a post that um, Austin Cleone put up. He was breaking down like a graph of flow state and kind of how you get into flow state in terms of the kind of hardness of what you're approaching. Like if you're approaching it so, so hard that you're, you just can't do it, you're never going to get into flow state there. But if you approach something that's so easy, that's almost like monotonous, you're never going to get into flow state because it's just like, this is boring, it's not challenging me. And it's almost like this perfect kind of blend between when things just challenging enough that it's pushing you, you're learning just a little bit, but not it's not like absolutely like, I just have no idea what's, what's happening here. And I was thinking about that in relation to confidence, because I was thinking, yes, that's flow state in terms of kind of just the idea of what we currently know is flow state. But I was thinking in terms of like, if you want to grow your confidence, it almost fits in that same middle ground of, if you try something that's too hard, for example, you're, you want to get into art, you want to learn to do a certain skill of anything, and you get all the tools and you just try. So, for example, if you want to be a carpenter and you just bought all of the carpentry tools and, you're like, and some wood and you're like, cool, I'm going to build a chair. That's going to be really, really hard compared to following some form of tutorial. Like everyone's built IKEA furniture before and it's like you follow that step by step really simply. Obviously, some, sometimes they are a bit complicated, but most of the time it's relatively simple and you can build some furniture with just something that's very simple. So I almost feel like having that tutorial, having that kind of someone to help you along the way, I think. And it's the thing, it's just the same as like listening to podcasts, reading books, like having, taking advice from other people can really benefit you because if you wanted to become an artist, you could, yeah, just buy the materials and try and have a go. And I think where most people probably stop with art is they try that for a certain amount of time and they're like, everything I've produced is rubbish and there's no point. I'm a, I'm a bad artist and I'm never going to be a good artist. Well, actually, whereas actually my brother's wife went to a, an art class and they basically went step by step through this tutorial of like, how to paint a skyline like it's a relatively simple painting but at the end of it it looked really impressive and I think her confidence as an artist will have grown just through trying that and getting something that had a good result it's the same reason that you would do a paint by numbers or another example is um, my girlfriend's nephew he's like six and did a kind of a follow-along tutorial of how to draw a cartoon character and it's almost like draw a circle here then take this space of here draw another circle there and by the end of it you've got something that looks good and you can be proud of that. And I think what we maybe need to try and do when we try new things is try and find experts or try and find someone that we can follow along with rather than just throwing ourselves into the deep end. Yeah, I think one thing we talk about on the show all the time is the 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 just length of doing something um, and, and just keep going and, and keep trying because you'll learn through your mistakes. And, and that's very true. And there's the saying, practice makes perfect. But uh, what we've said in the past is practice makes permanent. So if you're doing something wrong over and over again then you're just reaffirming in your own mind that this is the way that you do it and it's actually the wrong way to do it so the the best way to learn is going to be from those experts there's a reason why video games are a billion 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 pound industry and why so many people across the planet are addicted to them is because they look at, at our brains and go okay how can i make something that is gonna like entertain the human brain and if you think about what video games are, they're just tasks. Like you sit down and you've got a bunch of tasks to do in a, in a digital universe, which is like, that sounds like it would be shit, doesn't it? But what they do is they make those tasks difficult to achieve, but not so difficult that you're never going to achieve them. So you make these incremental steps as you learn to do the inputs and press the different buttons to get the results that you want or 
or if you're doing a game where it's like you've got to solve a rid like something like Zelda where you've got like a load of puzzles that you've got to solve. Yeah. Like that's gonna set your brain on fire because we are mad little monkeys that like to solve these these puzzles and these problems. So if you've got the puzzle in front of you that is like how how do I get people to find out about my business? That's that's a problem to solve. And you can either go into that, I mean, almost like we did when we first started, <laughs> that's just throwing mud against the wall and seeing what sticks and being like, okay, well, that worked, that didn't work. And then just kind of, as you go on, like 10 years later, we know what did work. So we we eliminate what didn't and we just do an amalgamation of what did. Um, or you can read all the books, you can look at the other experts in your field and, and they've done that research for you. So, so if you think about when you and I first met, you were a, a good artist, you had good fundamental skills, but you'd never used a spray can in your life. Yeah, I'd been using a spray can for 10 years. I'd made all of the mistakes. So I just said to you, oh, here, no, don't hold it like that. N- no, use these caps. Like, and, and I just shared with you. And then you became an amazing painter really quickly because I was able to teach you because I've been through that process. And like, there's definitely something to be said for learning from your mistakes but mm-hmm. I, I think I'm I'm more of an advocate of like try not to make any mistake. Like if you can avoid a mistake, like that's better. I know all of the business advice is like, yeah, yeah, make like fail fast, fail forward. Like for me, I, I prefer not to fail. Like just just get it right the first time. Yeah, someone has gone and done that before. Then why not just use their advice? Like as you were saying there, it's like yeah, when you taught me to paint, it was yeah all the things that you'd done wrong before. But then also as soon as you start you'll just find ways to improve. And it's not like you failed the first time. I think that that's interesting. Like when we think about like me learning to paint, I don't remember really failing that much, but I remember finding ways that I found myself as ways to improve. So I wouldn't then count the original thing as a failure. It just wasn't as optimal as it could be. It's the same way as you think of like anything through history, anything in terms of like farming or kind of industrial revolution or anything. Everything's a slight increment on what it was before. It doesn't mean what we were doing before was a failure. What we're doing now is better. And I think that's probably the best way to approach it. I think that's the way I approach anything that I do is I just find the experts in the field, try and observe what they're doing as much as possible, then try it myself. And then through trying it yourself, once you have that confidence in yourself, which I think kind of ties it back to where we were at the start, it's like building up the confidence in your own ability. And as soon as you've got that through learning from other people, then it kind of comes down to you to be able to get a bit more unique with it, to try new things. Because you, you don't fear it not working because the worst case scenario, you can go back to what does work. And I think that's a kind of a nice balance to have. And I think where I'm at now in my kind of photography career, which is still relatively young, I'm not scared to try new things. Like if we're on a shoot and I'm like, oh, actually, I really like this specific color of the outfit that you've got on. Let me see if I've got some gels that match those color. And just like finding something that works within that that I've never done before. And then you try it and I'm like, but I've never done it before. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm confident that there's a good chance that this could work. I've only got to that stage by watching other people, seeing what they do, learning the techniques, learning the right and wrong things to do, trying them, and then being like, okay, yeah, this will work. So now I'm going to push that even further. And I think that's the route that we kind of need to take in things is master, master our craft, like get good enough that we're kind of seen by other people as good in this field. And it's at that point, you can really start to kind of branch out and become like, unique I suppose and I was talking to an artist and someone messaged me on Instagram the other day just about like oh I'm a new photographer like I want to learn how to get good and I was looking at their feed and I was like okay you've 
definitely kind of not been doing this for very long. So I would say for the next two years, just find your like anyone you admire, any images you love, and just try and recreate those. Like, don't worry about being unique for those first few years. You just need to master the craft first. So once you've done that for two years, you've tried all these different images, you've copied all these different people. At that point, you'll have the confidence in yourself to go and try something new, which is then going to be what makes you unique, which is then going to kind of drive your career forward. Yeah, I think every successful person started off emulating someone uh, to some degree. I hear stand-up comedians talk about it all the time where they'd go on stage and their mannerisms and the, and the 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 pattern of their voice was completely modelled after someone that they... and and. A lot of it just comes through just repeatedly watching that person that you love, and it's and it's through that that repetition that then you start to find your own style. and And I think what's so interesting is going back to when you and I met. It's like I had my way of painting, I gave that to you, and then you started do. You you were like, okay, fine, cool. But instead of just taking that, you then went and looked at other sources. You started studying YouTube videos, really like like you would pause frame and zoom in to see like the t- certain yeah. techniques that people were using, which then completely changed how I painted because I had not, I'd just been doing my own thing, looking at what I was doing, being influenced by myself and like the, the few people that I painted with around me. And then all of a sudden you were looking to people who were painting in other countries and like, and, and really learning from other influences and other forms of painting and bringing that into our work. And rather than being sort of closed minded and saying, well, mate, I taught you how to paint. I was like, oh shit, that's really interesting. And started learning from you. And really those first few years, we were definitely like, we weren't replicating people's styles but we were replicating their method of application. The techniques, um, yeah. And, and I think that's that's an important distinction to make. I mean, you will still, if you do copy someone's style, you will definitely learn a lot along the way, but also you run a very big risk of, like I would keep that in a private sketchbook or, or yeah. on your private personal laptop. Um, I wouldn't be releasing those out into the world. I mean, I, I get tagged in like neon paintings all the time now. And it's just like, I I find it really weird that people want me to see like they're like hey look I've just I've just ripped you off it it's like okay thanks for letting me know um it's really interesting that people will do that but I do realize that along that journey they are going to learn something in there they're probably going to make a mistake which is going to lead to them doing something completely different to what I do and I'm I'm fully there for that yeah I think that idea of kind of like copying people and almost like the idea of plagiarism is something that people always get really worried about when it comes to copying other artists and I think what you said there about if you copied them then don't put it out to the world don't try and make money off someone else's creation I think that's where it becomes an issue because it's like I can think of like an artist so I remember like looking at his work and being like hold on this looks really familiar and then finding a picture of like another artist's work that was done 10 years before and I was like oh my god they've just copied the exact same character and they're now building a career off this character that someone else made and it's like yeah that that is suddenly like then makes me think really negatively of that specific artist whereas if that person just kept it in private and just used that to develop their skills i wouldn't now have a negative opinion of that artist i can't remember who it who it is who says it. i think it might be in seth godin's book the practice he talks about an artist who would do kind of drawings in newspapers and everyone thinks about him as being like this absolutely incredible artist who creates these amazing comics and then someone went to his studio and saw this huge pile of paper and were like, oh my God, what's that? And he was like, they're all the ones that didn't make it. And this was an artist who's been creating prolifically for so long, yet you would only ever see a fraction of his work because all the other stuff would be the practice. And I think this is 
probably an issue with social media where we feel like we have to post so constantly that we're like, oh, well, I've done this. I've spent this time on here, which means I have to put it out, which I think if you have copied someone else, then at least say this is a copy of this person. I think like there's no problem with that at all. But I think it's when people try to disguise other people's works and ideas as their own. Like if you're still learning, it's fine to say that you're still learning. I mean, we are all a work in progress. And and I think what was so fundamentally important about this episode that we've just done is the the conversation on neuroplasticity and how like we know that there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast in their 50s and their 60s who are just getting started on a, on a brand new creative career to think that there's no way to change or no way to learn after a certain age would be like a death sentence it would be really awful um, but when you look at the actual science and the way the pathways are formed in our brains that we can acquire these new skills uh, that is super exciting yeah like we obviously love to talk about psychology and the brain and kind of like the way that we approach the world based on kind of our own thoughts and opinions and I think this episode with Sam Conniff is just one of those ones that I remember leaving it and just being like, oh, yeah, anything that's like neuroscience-y, I'm like, okay, this is so interesting. And I think this is one of those episodes that anyone who has any form of interest in that is going to get so much from. Yeah, so Sam's new project is called The Uncertainty Experts. It's a live documentary. So basically you buy a ticket, you turn up on the day, and whilst you're watching the documentary, you're answering a series of questions and at the end of it, you you will get a personalised um, kind of feedback form that that talks about your the way that you deal with uncertainty. And we'll get into it in this episode about how much of our lives is based on the uncertainty and and what is to come in the future. I think this is a really exciting project. It's uh, a, a very different way of it's almost almost like doing therapy through a documentary, yeah. uh, which which could have like massive ramifications in the future uh it's it's supported by netflix so uh this is this is a sort of a really big thing that i think you guys will get a lot from yeah definitely boom so let's get into this episode let's do it hi sam hello david how are you how's it going dude hello adam i'm very well thanks how are you yeah wonderful thanks sam your your most recent project all about uncertainty born during lockdown i would presume it was indeed in, uh, born during a moment of profound uncertainty mid pandemic panic in my life in fact more precisely um i i had just signed off on some on some work i'd just come to terms with my new life of being an author uh, and worked out how to make making books make some money um, and I was feeling, you know, you know, very rarely do you actually have moments of success. You know, usually you're just chasing the idea that you've got it. And what was one of those very rare moments? I was like, I think I might have just made this fucking thing work. Um, and, you know, and you remember what it was like at the beginning of last year. And it was kind of like the news was about pandemic and was this China thing and whatever. And then just suddenly every single booking I had for that year, every single piece of work, it was all reliant on conferences and workshops and, and that kind of thing just disappeared. And you know, you'll know this, a lot of the listeners will know this, many creative people fell between any of the different schemes of support. Um, and and I have quite a big outgo. I've got, got divorced just before the pandemic, so there's just an awful lot of things to cover and things to, to tolerate. And yeah, I, I, I haven't got that anxious in my adult life. I haven't got that financially fucked in my adult life. And, and it just happened so fast. So yeah, I came. it was born out of a moment of real uncertainty for me. It's quite interesting that it, it was that was how you were feeling in your life was like completely uncertain and then the project you, that you made was all around that feeling well I feel like uh, uh, there was this dishonesty going on at the, at the time and, and the way that we were all feeling wasn't being expressed anywhere and for me it was really summed up in a visual 
which was the the daily briefings, these plinths, right? And on one side, you had pseudo strategy, which was politicians dressing up the fact that they didn't really know what to do with sound bites, which is a 20th century form of leadership anyway, right? You have to say that you know what to do and you can't be like knocked off guard. Um, we have a combative relationship between that kind of you know leadership and media and it's not really accountability. It's, you know, we can all see that. And then the other end was the kind of pseudoscience. And we, we've, we've learned to trust and believe the science, but it wasn't being well presented. It wasn't particularly clear and, and the thought process wasn't there. And so I kept thinking there's a third plinth missing. There is the, the creativity, the humanity, the honesty, like, and then perhaps in, in times gone by, that might have been a spiritual leader, but we, you know, there isn't somebody who could represent the multiple faiths or, or non-faiths of the country. And so should it be like Attenborough or, you know, like Judy Dench or David Beckham yeah. or someone, you know, who's kind of representative or Gareth Southgate, you know, someone but would, would describe the real feeling that's sort of going on. And, and that's what I went looking for. I went looking for a form of leadership or advice that, that, that I didn't feel was on display and I, I'd put a word out. I'd done a, I've done a lot, a lot of work here with young people and helping young people start businesses. And so I was worried about those guys. And seeing as I had a lot of time on my hands suddenly, um, I put a word out saying, if you're struggling with your business, uh, I can offer some free mentoring sessions. And I got very booked up and I was really impressed with how resilient my young guys were. And many of those guys through my work with Liberty, a lot of them were from quite challenging backgrounds. And then these two lads I spoke to, because I used to run an uh, entrepreneur scheme in prisons, and so arguably they'd had the toughest of backgrounds and they were by far the most resilient. And I just, it mm. just, this thought struck me. And so I reached out to a, another guy I worked with, Carl, who wrote a book about his experience of prison as a survival guide to other young prisoners and asked him what his tips were for lockdown based on his experience of, of, of solitary um, isolation in prison. And, he, and it was a bit of a trite example, I, I think, in retrospect, but at the time it seemed really valuable. And I wrote it up and I shared it as an article and it went you know, around the world. And in it, I used the phrase, are we, are we looking at the wrong uncertainty experts and should we be looking elsewhere? And the advice he gave me changed me. It changed my outlook and it began this journey and all this response I got to that. People saying, yeah, you know, there are people around us all the time who've, who really deal with actual uncertainty. And so as I began reaching out, meeting you, a refugee who'd started a business that had then sold, a person who'd been a prisoner of war who'd become a leadership guru, and I began to piece together the advice that I needed that I was mm. actually seeking. And it's by far the best advice I've had of the last year and a half. And actually I built the project on the advice as I was getting it. So it was all a bit of a kind of meta experience really. Um, whilst talking to all these different people, did you notice kind of a different level of uncertainty between younger people and older people? When you're younger, there's a lot more uncertainty because obviously you haven't got the experience yet to back things up. Then I wonder if when you get so far down kind of a rabbit hole that you're like, well, the, the idea of uncertainty is even more scary. I was expecting there to be more nuances here than there actually were. I was expecting there to possibly be a gender nuance, certainly an age nuance, and possibly even a geographic nuance. And it seems not to be the case. There seems mm. to be other things that impact. Um, the, the measure is called uncertainty tolerance. It's been well documented across science. There's three main measures, and uh, you guys had a brief insight into those at the preview, but, but during the full series, it's a, a more rigorous assessment. And uncertainty tolerance can be measured and different people have different levels of natural uncertainty tolerance. But there doesn't seem to be the nuances that you'd expect. And, and there's some thinking behind that. So young people, and, and that's certainly the case, you know, it's why young people or, or can't be held to account for certain crimes in the same way, because there's less fully formed judgment. You know, there, you know there's, there's still a lot of chemical imbalances, certainly in boys as they're growing up, that can distort, um, you know, rational decision making. But at the same time, 
whilst an uh, older generation might have more wisdom or inbuilt lived experience upon which to draw, they've also got more to lose. And so that changes your relationship with uncertainty because it's uh, the, the underlying notion of uncertainty triggers, psychologically speaking, in people their fears because we, our bodies, based on ancient warning systems, recognise uncertainty as a form of threat. So we then feel whatever our biggest threats are to us. So if you're your great fears are around money or providing for your family or you know being judged or whatever uncertainty then translates itself towards your fears and that's why we feel so uncomfortable in moments of uncertainty so it becomes very very subjective and less based on who you are and your backgrounds now that's not to say that there isn't another side of this where it has an imbalance because uh women would arguably are more vulnerable to uncertainty if you look around the world certainly the uh, populations of the global south you know women tend to fare worse off as a result for climate change um, or as a result of sexual violence or as a result, you know, there's lots of different places where there's heightened amounts of uncertainty and that does disproportionately affect different groups of people. And like most things, it's the same groups of people that tend to have the greater negative disproportionate effects. So, you know, young black people living in a city in London or in, in North America are more likely to be, you know, find themselves stopped and searched or, or in trouble with cops mm. versus, you know, women in Mexico are, are really vulnerable of um, uh, assault. So there are people more vulnerable to uncertainty, but there doesn't seem to be a, a people specific response to people who have a higher level of tolerance to uncertainty. The main thing that changes your tolerance to uncertainty is your experience. And so people who have been through uh, experiences, it means that their, what their, 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 the predictive processing part of their brains is more likely to uh, include unlikely circumstances. And it's why, and this, it was when I first started the, inter the interviews, they kept talking about whether they were like, uh, you know, Marcus Fair, who was an ex-addict of 20 years and now a CEO of this incredible rehabilitation program or whether it was Dr. Ming, you know, who'd, who'd survived near suicide, gone through gender transitions, now this world-leading scientist. You know, opposite ends of the spectrum, right? But they would both talk about sixth senses. They'd both talk mm -hmm. about their incredible ability to read a room, to know what other people were thinking, to be able to use their emotional intelligence like a superpower. And it's like, you know, it, it, that response was so consistent. that These people had found a, a kind of, not really a deeper intelligence, but a uh, a more profound way of, of reading and feeling their way through uncertain moments than most of us who are just kind of relying on our rational judgment to assess something. And that was what got me really interested because we all know that fit. We all know that we've felt, you know, we can trust someone or, or trust the situation, but we don't necessarily always trust our own instincts. And so that's the bit that got me really, really excited. I think it's it's really interesting that, that one of the experts w was a former gang member and, um, I think my sort of dalliances with crime um, are, are the reasons why. So we, I did the preview and, and scored really highly. And I, I would credit so much of it to my years and years of breaking the law. Um, so painting illegally in the streets, um, because that's that's a very heightened sort of sense of you. Like when you, if you make your way into a train yard, for example, you're, you're illegally trespassing. You've got danger of death all around you. Uh, you've got danger of being arrested. There's, there's so many sort of factors that, that go into it. And no matter how much you do plan and prepare for a sort of military style operation like that, there is always something that could go wrong. So you are always sort of on that, on that wire. Um, and, and last week I got arrested in, um, in Ibiza um, for painting in the streets. And I was like, so calm 
I was like, so it just like just washed over me. It was like I had no problem at all. Um, I feel, I find myself sort of really comfortable in those moments because, and 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 so I suppose what was to link it back to what you were saying before. Do you think that it if you're not comfortable in uncertainty, it's something that can be trained, it's something that can be worked on, because you said it's down to the experiences that you have, and it's certainly like my experiences with that sort of stuff is is what and, and obviously I didn't get arrested like I, I got let off I got cautioned and they took all my details and, and whatnot um but it's it's my experiences that I that I credit for for doing well I don't think there was like an innate thing that's inside me that meant I could deal with uncertainty I think it's because I've been through the shit that I've been through that I scored highly um on the test so the the evidence would suggest that you're absolutely correct David and I, I went on a bit of a journey. So I, by you know, six months after I'd begun the project, I'd done a series of interviews and I knew that I was on something that was that felt really unusual and I knew that it was helping people because I'd started running them as free workshops and uh, yeah, health workers and uh, head teachers. I'd put various people through it and I knew there was something handy here. And it was then being introduced to the team at UCL. So within UCL's brain, brain sciences department, there's a specific and pretty niche let's be honest, laboratory called decision-making in uncertainty. <laughs> it's a, kind of the perfect match. Yeah. Um, and what they, every single story, every single insight, and let's take reference to the guy that you just mentioned, the gang leader who became a business leader. They looked at the interviews and they'd say, okay, so what this demonstrates is, so with Carl, what they introduced me to was a concept known as neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to continue to grow and evolve. And it was widely thought that that stopped in your mid-20s and, you know, that's where those kind of sayings come like, don't not don't don't hit your head because it kills off your synapses. And but actually the truth is it slows down naturally, but it can also be encouraged to continue. So this notion of cognitive growth where neurons and, and pathways continue to evolve and you can have really heightened and adaptive states of learning. Um, meaning an old dog really can learn new tricks. And it's why, you know, famously black cab drivers develop that hippocampus because because neuroplasticity can be stimulated. One way it can be stimulated is psychedelics, um, particularly mushrooms. Um, another way is prolonged periods of exposure to uncertainty. So you in a train yard with an awful lot to do, a creative act in front of you, you know, the strategy of all the planning, the risk that's all around you, and then you're doing that again and again and again and again, means that your brain is enlarging in those moments, is taking on mm. all of this information. And, and any kind of high arousal, even panic, you know, puts you into high arousal. Your, it's like your frame rate increases and you're able, everything goes slightly on slow-mo. Everyone's been in that situation, you know, from a car crash to a, to a you know, a violent incident to, to some kind of trauma and everything slows down. And it's because your, your senses speed up. And in that moment of time, you can form new pathways that take place around it because your, 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 your whole body is designed to keep you alive. So it really comes alive in these moments. And that's what Carl, you know, he really eloquently and beautifully describes without knowing it, the scientific concept of neuroplasticity. And he talks about in states of uncertainty, when we're outside the patterns through which we become um, regimented and we step into the new, we get to see things that we'd never see before. And the scientists are sat there going, I've never heard someone describe this so well, you know. And, and, and this wonderful thing happened. They're trying to, the decision-making and uncertainty laboratory was set up after the 2008 financial collapse to try to help leaders and human beings and business people and community leaders make better decisions when there isn't rational information available to them. And so they've come up with some really great, really pioneering work, but it's really dense, quite difficult to work your way through and feels very academic and scientific. And so they were actually looking for some real world, 
immersive you know project to help capture some of their ideas and i had this real world immersive project and i was really looking to see you know is this more than coincidence is this more than i've just found some nice stories to tell what's going to pin it together so then i went on a journey of you know real again further uncertainty and actually massive imposter syndrome for me because i felt very out of my depth with that much kind of scientific and academic rigor but what became really beautiful was behind each one of those stories seeing that come together so yes it's a long answer to your question. Those periods of uncertainty do create lasting changes in people's cognitive processes. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about like when you start, like as a creative, if you're going to start a new business, there's always like that first few years is always so stressful. And I remember like when we first started our business, like just not sleeping properly for like years, like you'd go in bed, you'd sit there and your brain would just be turning over, kind of you'd be stressed and anxious because you don't know what the future's going to hold there. And I think, as you go more into your career, that seems to become less and less. And like now I sleep completely fine. And I kind of think back to those times of being like, God, why did I just not sleep and just kind of get over it? But I think to the neuroplasticity side of it, that's that kind of anxiety that is in your head helps you grow so quickly. And I think it's in those early stages that you always learn really quickly because you are so stressed all the time. And I was talking to a friend recently who's just started a business, I think about six months into it. And they were talking about that same feeling of not being able to sleep and they've got all these ideas running through their head. But obviously, that is such a great way for your brain to start working out what is going on and how to quickly adapt to like the situation you're in. It's, it's completely it. And it's, it's this understanding, I think. And the, that's the main thing about the uncertainty experts. It's what it showed me is this is stuff that's going on inside us all the time anyway. And so uncertainty is this, A, I think we've, with it, we've got ourselves to a underlying causal problem. And yes, we know we kind of got got to grips with the anxiety or the frustration or the, 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 the instability that's around us, but there's one thing that kind of joins them all up. And there are two outcomes to that one thing. Uncertainty is shown again and again to drive anxiety, sleeplessness, fatigue, exhaustion. It sits underneath them all. But it can also be this unlock to great creativity. So it really does become this, this choice, this really golden opportunity to choose between them. And that innate sense of worry what keeps us awake at night is a, a deeply ingrained protective system i found this really great statistic doing the research the average person has up to sixty thousand thoughts per day of which 80 percent are negative and 95 percent are exactly the same repetitive thoughts as the day before but Jesus. further research shows that 85 percent of those negative and worrisome thoughts uh never happen and of the 15 percent of those worries that do 79 percent of the participants going through this process uh, concluded that, that that not only were they baseless, but it had also taught them something. So, you know, we view these things as negative. They very rarely come true. And those that do often teach us more than we think they were ever going to. And this was mirrored in the in the research. You saw the way it works, right? You meet the uncertainty experts, you're asked questions, you then reflect on those. And over the period of three episodes, these reflections kind of build up. And it's, you know, we've, we've drawn a lot of inspiration from some of the big successful talking therapies that have moved online. And that's why it's working. When we ask early on about great fears, around 90% of the audience said their greatest fear was fear of failure. And that makes sense. You're at the start of a new project. We're creative people. We've got uh, egos, you know, we've, we've got livelihoods, but there's a lot of reasons to fear failure. And, you know, at a more primal level, failure would be something that might get us uh, excluded from our social groups and we require those social groups and supports to stay alive. So there's a lot of reasons to fear failure. But when we ask people towards the end of the series, there's this um, really, really moving uh, interview with a guy who was a prisoner of war during the first Iraq conflict. And he's now 
it gave him a really philosophical outlook on leadership and he now writes books on leadership and, and talks on it extensively. And he talks about the moment he thought he was going to die and, and, and how these kind of ideas of how he wanted to live came into his mind. And so the audience were asked another question about what do they least want to regret? You know, if they ever do have to come to like an existential reflection, what do they not want to regret? And far and away, a similar kind of proportion said, uh, about 90%, said missed opportunity. But the, what's the one thing most likely to lead to missed opportunity is, of course, fear of failure. And when the, when and in that subset, what do you least want to regret? When we looked for f- failure, just less than five percent said that actually the thing they're going to regret is failure. So there's this chance, this really important and powerful chance to reframe our fear of failure because it's never going to go away. But it usually is a bit of a headwind, or at least you know stopping us, or at least it knocks us off our tracks. But the relationship with it, certainly in a in a creative role is one that's going to drive us forward and understand it, appreciate it. And as one of the um, other uncertainty experts, the guy I was mentioning, actually, the guy who'd spent so long as an addict and, and now runs this like, life-saving program, he says he just takes his fear, he knows it's not going to go away, but he puts it in his back pocket so that it pushes him forward. And I just thought, as a visual way of understanding what we can do here, that's really nice. And I think as well, going into it on the neuroscience version of it, is understanding that that fear is going to lead to anxiety, which is going to lead to your you growing, for you getting better. So it's almost having that positive mindset of it in advance, being like, okay, well, I know this is going to scare me. I know I'm like I'm not going to feel comfortable in this. It's going to make me feel horrible whilst I'm doing it. But I'm going to come out the, come out the other side a better person who I think is that then is going to have a different version of what fear is. Like their bar, their bar is going to level up a little bit. And Catherine Templar-Lewis, who's the creative scientist, lead scientist on the program now and a neuroscience specialist, showed me this, you know, the, the brain recognizes fear and excitement in exactly the same way. And it's just, it's a really great visual, you know, the duality of this moment and opportunity. And it does go back to that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger line. But only if you go into it intentionally, recognizing and appreciating these fears, because they are there to protect you. And, and there are some things, you know, justifiably to be scared of, but are the, the, the neuroscience, the programming of our brains was for a different set of threats than the one that we've got. And most of our responses to them, you know, summarized often as the fight or flight response. But actually, she also told me it's um, fight or flight should actually be the seven Fs. Can I remember them all? It's fight, flight, freeze, fawn, fuck, feed. You know, there's a number of different responses, but they're all short term. And this is it. We're, we're now in a place where the threats around us are very long term residual you know they're not they're not an immediate threat to life it's it's you know the, the climate crisis it's it's our anxiety it's obesity you know they're they're prolonged issues and we're not designed to have that prolonged state of arousal and so it does terrible and negative things to our body so the first stage stage in all of this is is becoming aware of these different processes that are taking place and then that allows you to take some degree of control over them like even that point about negativity bias the 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 original setting in a human being thousands of years ago was about one in 10. Every, every 10 opportunities that would come forward, only one of them would be deemed by your by your internal protection systems as a creative opportunity to take a risk on. And the rest would be shut down, no thanks. And they think that's increased now to around 200 in one. So actually there's so few minutes of the day. I mean, if you extrapolate that over a day, it means there's about 15 minutes in a day when your brain's thinking, yeah, okay, I might take a risk on that. And the rest of it, no thanks. That doesn't sound, that doesn't feel good. And I think when you have those 15 minutes, you just need to fucking do it because you've got such a small window. Like I talk about this all the time. Like people get, they listen to podcasts like this and they get so much motivation and they're like, come on, I'm going to go and do the thing. I've got that 15 minute window to overcome the fear. And then they don't do it. 
And it's like, make the most of that opportunity. Like nothing is more important. You're not going to get this 15 minutes for a whole another 24 hours. So drop whatever you're doing and just progress in some way. And by doing that, you you increase your tolerance. So you increase that 15 minutes. So David got a high score from the thing. That means David probably has more, you know, 15 minutes would be the average. Probably has like 20 or 30 minutes of it, you know. And the way that you do that, you the way that you increase your tolerance to uncertainty is further uncertainty. So you said the things that you can look back on and laugh that once you thought you weren't being able to do. Again, there's uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a well-known concept, but one of the guys I interviewed was a smuggler for 15 years and he's now a Harley Street trauma specialist. You can't get an appointment with this guy because he brings such wealth of, of knowledge and insight. And he, we spent a long time, I got really, really uh, sidelined by the conversations about um, the skill sets of being a smuggler and how transferable they were and like the mentorship program there is for young smugglers and like his, <laughs> his management, how, he, how you manage difficult bosses. It was fascinating. <laughs> anyway, one of the techniques that he learned as a smuggler that he still uses as a, as a specialist is drawing um, stretch zones. So you draw yourself in the middle of a circle. There's your comfort zone, everything around you that feels like you, you already know how to do it. Then you draw a further. So, so you create a donut, a concentric circle around that. And you put in there the things that you currently feel uncomfortable doing that you would like to be able to do. And so by consciously mapping it, illustrating it, knowing what they are. So for lots of people, that would be, public speaking or conflict conversations or doing their finances or whatever the things are that trigger you seeing them there and then consciously trying to spend more time with them you know and that's it spend more time actively in your stretch zones you'll look back in three or six months and that initial inner circle would have expanded and those things that were once difficult now sit within the comfort circle and then new things can go into your stretch zones and like him drawing it out for me with all these kind of amazing, like terrifying, death-defying stories of being a smuggler and then explaining how he's using it with his clients now. You know, obviously, I went away and did exactly the same thing. And it's it's true. You then just look back three months on and, all oh, right, those things that were scary because you're now not allowing them to trigger all those neurological responses, you're taking a degree of ownership of them and with intention now pulling them into your lived experience. So we're we're operating on on this caveman brain system that is is very out of date for for modern living. And you actually said during the preview, understanding uncertainty will train you to survive the twenty first century, which I think is is really interesting because we we lose those those threats of a saber toothed tiger coming and eating us, and the things we're worried about, like you said, they are they are a lot more mundane, really. Um, and obviously, I spoke before about breaking into train yards, and I don't I don't really suggest anyone does that. But it's like I, I look at the things that I'm doing and I'm using the uncertainty to push me forward. So you and I were were speaking quite a bit when um, and you were helping me out when I was um, planning to do my art drop across London, which was uh, like my fear there was was of looking silly. It was of putting all of this art in the street, spending all of this time doing it and then no one actually caring about it. No one actually going out and and picking it up and and then when no mainstream press or media picked up on it which I and I thought it was quite a good story and Lucy Werner thought it was a good story and then it didn't get featured anywhere I'm then left thinking well is this a really bad idea and that was that was something I'd worried about but we went ahead we did it and it was like probably the best thing I've ever done um and like coming up as soon as there's there's a travel block I'm planning to go to LA next year because because I'm putting myself in that uncertainty. I don't know anyone out there. I don't have any kind of walls out there. I'm just going to, because my career did well over lockdown in Shoreditch when I was just walking around East London painting spaces, I'm going to go and try and do that in a new city. It might not work, but I know that it will be a fun experience. It will, there'll be learnings that happen there. And I was chatting to my mate the other day and I was like, 
was like, I was saying, oh, in fact, 45 RPM, who's previous guest on the show. And he was saying, and the mad thing is that you'll actually do it. <laughs> he was like, because I talk to so many people and they'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He's like, I know you're actually going to do that, which was a really beautiful gift in a way, because he gave me total accountability of like, I'm going to look like a dickhead now if I don't do it, because I've told him that I am going to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just think it's really interesting of, it's definitely something that I'm trying to embrace is, is putting myself in those situations because so far, all of those uncertain situations that I've put myself in to date have actually turned out to be really successful, even though I was worried about the small mundane things like people might laugh at me. So I think there's a few things that I've learned from this process uh, that, that go on there. And and I think they're often often the case in for, for entrepreneurs or maybe creative creative people. This probably, probably fits outside the world, but it, it, it aligns to us as well. Um, and I didn't know this stuff at all. I mean, I've just, you know, exactly the same thing. Gone on this permanent cycle of feeling like I've, I've got a really good idea, get excited, then feel like I've gone too far and then I'm a fucking idiot and then it's all going to go desperately <laughs> wrong and then it doesn't work out as I wished it had and then I feel terrible about it for a while. And then like, you know, some while later, someone tells you, I, I remember that thing you really did. And, you know, I'm so reliant on external verification for the things that I think are good to be qualified as success. You know, I wish I wasn't, but I, I, I am. And... You know, you said, you, you know, feeling silly or not getting those, you know, they're, again, they're based on that kind of ancient system because feeling silly, not being included within the group, those were key things for survival. And, and that's still why social pressure is, is such a driver to us. And one of the things that we've, we've seen as a way of getting through this is this uh, notion of the brain as a predictive um, engine. And so it's constantly simulating. You don't need to see everything that's around you to know what's there, right? You can see your table from an angle and you know there's a fourth leg, even if you can't see it. Your brain is doing this form of simulation permanently around you all the time, every single second of every single day. And it's assessing the things that are in front of you. And if it thinks they're going to be a risk, it won't do them. Now, because you spent that time during lockdown, building a name for yourself, getting those kind of dopamine hits of reward because people were giving you your good feedback. You felt more comfortable in the streets. You, you, you already knew that your brain had done this kind of activity in the train yards. It was gradually allowing and saying, this is good for David. This feels good for David. Mm. And then there's a second, so that the predictive part of the brain usually is based on previous experiences. And so now most people's very negativistic, individualistic, protective brain wouldn't think that that's a good idea and they wouldn't get to the idea about LA. Then the other thing that works is simulation. And this comes directly out of the, the lab at UCL because I think it's easy for this to get mistaken for things like manifestation of which, you know, mm. lots of people have positive experiences. So I'm not putting a downer on it. It's just, you've got to be careful when you start getting into- Don't worry, we rip manifestation on this podcast all the time. So. <laughs> right, okay, great. So the, the thing that's come out of UCL is a, is, a, is a called conviction narrative theory. And conviction narrative theory runs along these lines. If you simulate the idea of you being in LA- so you, you, you use every single skill that you've got, you use the exact experience that you've got of what that was like in the UK, and you try to inhabit it emotionally. Now, you saw in the preview, we talked a bit about something called interoception, which is this relatively new word, but it's an ancient idea that, you know, you're, you're in touch with your feelings. I mean, and people with really high interoception can sense when something's going wrong internally. They can feel their own heartbeat. You know, it's the dialogue between our, our cognitive intelligence and our emotional intelligence. So if you re you're, you're in touch with yourself, so you're really feeling what it's going to be like in LA, you're assessing the risk. Does this feel good? What would happen if this took place? How, do, how is that going to feel? The more you simulate that deeply, the less your brain can uh, differentiate as to whether that's happening really or it's you know, happening in your imagination. 
So that means when it actually comes along, and this is the principle of conviction narrative theory, if you run rigorous simulation of two or three different scenarios and you, you, you know, I mean, professionally role play, let's say it, what that's going to be like, then when that searching circumstance comes around, you're more ready for it. And as your friend mm. says, you're actually going to go and do it because part of you has already done it. You know, mm. you've, you've run through that system. You've run through that play. You can see yourself doing it. Your body has only given you good responses. Yes, we know it's going to be scary, but on the whole, I can see this is going to be a good experience. Your brain's updating its predictions now based on, okay, I think I might have kind of seen that. Can't tell if it was in the past or in David's head, but I kind of seen it. So now I can predict that it might, there's more chance of it going well. And so that's the, that's the, uh, a fair, <laughs> lucky there's no scientists here because they'd probably, you know, vastly improve that description. But that's the basic level of how our brains operate and how they widen their aperture as to what they might let us do. And they won't give us those nasty chemicals that make us feel like we want to get back into bed. And in this instance, they give you a bit of a rush and feeling like, actually, that does sound exciting. And like you said, even if it doesn't quite pay off, you'll feel like you're going to learn something. That's your your predictive brain has enlarged its scope of what might be a po- good positive possibility. Would you then be an advocate of things like goal setting? I think so. Yeah, I think the. I mean, I I personally tend not to because I think we become really um, beholden to the plans that we make, and we begin to view the plans that we make as reality, and that becomes really dangerous. You know, people think spreadsheets are real and and, and not just you know boxes for our imagination and that that's dangerous but i do think that when you're stepping out into periods of extreme uncertainty and new things it really helps to make things digestible because you know the danger of taking these risks that we're talking about is overwhelm and overwhelm feels horrible and overwhelm can set you backwards and overwhelm you know means you don't want to leave the house and then that comes with dissonance and that triggers anxiety and i don't want anyone to be mm. in that space so again and again, the uncertainty experts reference this as you know, when things feel way too big, beginning to break them down, beginning to give yourself lists, because it's a, it's a method of regulating your emotional system. You know, every single person listening to this, I'm sure, has at some point written a to-do list with something they've already done on it so that you can cross it out, right? That gives you just that like, slight sense of achievement, which creates a small reward of dopamine, the drug that makes us feel good about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And then you begin to work your way through that list. So yeah, there are times where I advocate, you know, being free from plans to really go off the edge of the map because that that really aids discovery and not allowing yourself to believe that just because it's written down means that's the only reality that takes place. And at the same time, when you risk overwhelm, when you're really stepping out into uncharted territory, it can help a great deal to be quite rigorous about how you list, set goals, create milestones for yourself as well. Could you describe some of the um, safety behaviours? I've never heard of safety behaviors. When I first started reading about it, I said, oh, great, here's something that's really going to help people. Because they sound like, you know, they sound like they want to be your friends, right? Safety behaviors is a psychological term for our short-term protection measures, but really they are sticking plasters on much bigger wounds. So uh, a classic, say, the, the, the highest safety behavior that came back when we asked the audience around it was uh, recourse to alcohol or snacking, chocolates and foods, things that make you feel immediately better but actually they don't deal with the causal problem that you're facing. And so they tend over time to make things worse, either because they become a maladaptive behavior. So you now develop a habit. Like I'm having an argument. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm going to go and get a drink. And before you know it, now every time you have an argument, you want to go and have a drink. And now before you know it, every time you feel uncomfortable. So they can lead to long-term maladaptive habits. And also 
they typically make that problem worse. Now, I'm not going to deal with the source of that argument. I'm going to get distracted from it. And now I'm probably not going to respond to it as well as I could. And then I might encounter the regrets of all the other things that I do. So uh, the alternative to a safety behavior is a coping strategy in psychological terms. So, oh, wait a minute. Here's that feeling that I don't like. Oh, look, it's, I'm having an argument again. These things are connected. Mm, my compulsion is I'm going to go to the fridge and get a beer. Wait a minute. What's actually going to help here is me taking 20 minutes out, you know, pausing this argument with this person, asking if I can have a moment to reflect, explain I'm feeling a bit anxious, go and get some fresh air, come back. Oh, look, and, and now my new, and afterwards I can reflect on this moment, know that I feel really good about how I responded, enjoy the dopamine of it, and over time shape a new habit. And that's it. Habits are, are designable constructs. We, 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 we don't necessarily, you know, a good habit or a bad habit is always going to have an outcome, right? But we do have control over how we, respond to those things and and it really is very straightforward it's about awareness spotting them becoming aware of them and then acknowledging that process and then you can begin to adapt them to almost massage them from from bad or i mean it's not for me to judge whether they're bad or not but from the experience that you want to have as an automatic response to the experience that you keep <laughs> you know and everyone knows the safety behavior like why did i do that again <laughs> and it really <laughs> really hard things to break right because for some years you've you've used that as a as a, as a as a way to get through something that's difficult and because the the brain is more interested in your survival than it is in your creative future or your your long-term happiness it just wants you to get through it so it's taking a short-term hack to the most immediate comfort it can find it's not interested in your you know long-term creative fulfillment it just wants to get out of the shit that's in front of it because again the, the original threat was right in front of you life or death do something about it safety behavior get out of the way well now just getting out of the way it isn't really what we need so yeah, safety behaviours ironically never make you more safe. I'm definitely not an expert when it comes to addiction, but um, I would assume that the reason why people always describe themselves as an addict, even if they've been clean for 10 years, is that because those neural pathways are, are there, so it's because they're always there, it's so easy to slip back into them. Yeah, and it's so hard to break it because there are so many things going on, particularly around those forms of addiction, because... Um, the negative feelings of anxiety are or, or certainly feel like they're being lifted or eased, numbed, you know, different words that I've heard from friends of mine who's gone through exactly that. Uh, and a difficulty in then, you know, because then they will shut down your uh, cognitive functions. So to kind of be able to stay aware and talk yourself through this process and get to the better outcome. And then because you do get a, a dopamine reward from most drugs and substances they feel good in that moment mm. so then but then you go looking for it again and again and it, and it doesn't work there's a really interesting i've got a bottle of in the fridge called sentia and it's a spirit that's been scientifically designed to hit those uh, gaba reflexes which is is the first part of what alcohol does for you so the theory with it is that it gets you to that point of like one or two drinks like the bit that most people enjoy and then mm. after that you know it begins to lose its kind of effect but it's that bit that that hit that we're all kind of, you know, or most of us enjoy. And then once you get into a maladaptive pattern or relationship with it, it's why it's so difficult to break. And and it's really unfair when people will bring a more kind of stoical response to it. Well, it's a matter of willpower. Well, it's a matter of choice because sometimes it's not. You know, these are these are these are choices, but these are subconscious choices that are taking place. And when you don't even know that's what's going on, then you end up giving yourself a hard time for those subconscious choices that you're designed to make. And then it becomes more and more of a negative cycle. Um, and one of the key ways out of that negative cycle is something else I learned in this. And then it's another uncatchy catchphrase uh, called metacognition. 
And, you know, the amount of times I've learned things with Meta at the beginning of the moment last year, <laughs> it begins to blow my mind. And what I finally went and did is looked up what it really means. And it's just like a higher version of itself. So metacognition is thinking about thinking. And, you know, my shorthand of that is talking to yourself. <laughs> but by creating a dialogue with yourself about what you're doing and why you did it, what metacognition shows is an ability to understand your thoughts and then importantly, the thought processes behind them. So because the uncertainty experts, like 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 you back in the train yard uh, example, I bet going through that, you were having quite an evolved dialogue with yourself, you know, running risk assessments, seeing where you were, scanning the environment, work, doing the work, making sure there's quality of the work, scanning the environment. And again, like the, the incident with the police in Ibiza, you very quickly run through your own internal checklist. How do I respond? How do I act? What's the likelihood of this to actually go somewhere badly? The best thing I can do is stay calm. It's all going to be all right. My predictions are all in place. And that, and it's really well um, shown to link incredibly well to well-being. Uh, and, and it also means you're heading towards the fridge. I'm having a conversation. I can feel this uncomfortable trigger in me. I'm reaching for a substance. I know that's a habit. And so by encouraging this dialogue, you know, and for it to be a useful and healthy dialogue is how we begin to, or how lots of people are shown to be able to begin to break those patterns of behavior that are called, can be called addiction that can really, really help people through it. I think that's super interesting. It's it's something that we've had massive feedback on the show is whenever we do a really like targeted, like what the fuck are you doing intro, we always get loads of DMs from people saying, I really felt like you were, you were talking directly to me because we, we realize that sometimes, especially creatives, we need to be called out on our bullshit and the things that we're doing just aren't serving us and get like, get back to the work. Like for us, the work is always the most important thing. The work is, the work is going to trump the the marketing and the sales and everything. It all comes down to the work and the quality of the work. And we know that our listeners are sometimes listening to this, but not doing the fucking work. And it's, it's really interesting if I, I suppose if you can have that, that conversation with yourself, like what the fuck are you doing? You know that this feels nice in the moment, but what you really should be doing is going and working on that thing. The thing that you know is your thing. That's where you should be right now. That's going to be really, really helpful to people because we're only in your ears like once a week and, and like, like having accountability to yourself, having that conversation with yourself, you can be there for yourself 24 seven. This treads into, it can for some people tread into uncomfortable territory. Lots of people don't feel that good about things when they're entitled self-help or self-love or, or various other things. So I'll try and keep it distant from that, but I'll try and keep it honest. The, the majority of instances in the work that I've done, both be as a kind of mentor entrepreneur, like this work through Be More Pirate is few and far between. Do I find the people asking questions that don't already have the answers? And that's why shows like yours and others are so useful because what it really does is allows us to reflect and reflect on that, which we know. I said at the beginning, you know, this all started for me on an advice from a guy who was giving advice of surviving prison. The number one thing he showed me was a practice that he called spending time in the time between tides. And what he meant was that dead time, the time most of us are scared of, the time when you're worried you're going to bump into your own soul, you know, and find out you don't like yourself, right? <laughs> the time that we, we play music to cover up. And in there, in that space, lie most of the answers that you're going to need because you've already worked this out, right? You're already predicting and making these decisions subconsciously or autonomically or however else. And so if you go back to the moment that you're finding yourself in, the act of creativity is scary because by, by, by definition, you're trying to do something new. If you're trying to do good work, you are going to be taking a risk. 
and you're going to be doing something new. You're going to be putting yourself on display and you're going to be trying something which may fail. So every single time you go around the cycle, you're going to go, you're going to experience all those automatic senses of discomfort, of ambiguity, of, of silliness, as you, you know, to really call it out what it is. And it's natural. And if you're not feeling those, then you're not going to be doing new work. So giving yourself a break for that. But then the other part of it, you said around goal setting, one way that's really useful to think about this is reward setting. So having that dialogue with yourself. So yes, recognizing that for creatives, very often a safety behavior will be procrastination or even worse, perfection. I can't do this. I can't put this in the world yet because it's not perfect. I just need to do another day on this. Just another day. And that is very often a safety behavior. Judging when the work is good enough knowing that it's never quite going to be perfect. And that is you know, a good thing and part of the process in itself. And, and, and am I really making the right choice to hold on? Or am I now protecting myself by not putting this out in the world? So that's a really useful question to ask yourself in a kind of metacognitive state. And then setting a reward. So when I, when I, when I ship this, when I launch this, when I publish this, when I, when, I, when I showcase this, when I do whatever the stage is, I will give myself this momentary reward. So rather than let it be a... a the, the maladaptive safety behavior, I'll, I'll, I will free myself from this horrible moment by numbing myself at the end of the day. I will reward myself by then, then insert something that, you know, makes you feel really good when I do publish this thing. And if you, if you begin that process of it, having the dialogue with yourself, recognizing those fears come from an innate place, which would prove that you're taking a risk, which is like you say, the work, the job, the, the task that we've given ourselves. And then setting up a positive payoff, like, so I'll listen to Creative Rebels once I've got this stuff done because I know that always makes me feel good rather than I don't want to face up to the reality of what I'm doing at the moment and I'm feeling a bit scared. Recognize that's good. Listen to Creative Rebels as a distraction. Do it the other way around. And then this because you, you then create a nice, healthy relationship with it. I'll do it. I'll ship it. And then I'll spend an hour listening to, to David and Adam as I walk around the park. It's something interesting I heard you talk about. Um, I think it was on a different podcast. It was talking about between 30 and 70% you have like a certain knowledge and then after that you've kind of missed the opportunity. This really reminds me of kind of like linking this back to perfectionism and like kind of when to post stuff out. It's like you're learning the most in that like up till 70% effectively. So after that, it's kind of whatever time you're putting into something is a bit pointless. You should just be, if you want to keep growing, as soon as you basically get to about 70%, that needs to be out because if you want to keep growing, you need to start on the next thing to kind of get up to that 70% again. Yeah, it's it's a stat from Colin Powell, who is arguably like the most successful, uh, one of the most successful leaders of the 20th century, because he served under three successive presidents um, uh, on different sides of the political persuasion, because he was just, you know, so good at his shit. Um, uh, although, obviously, you know, that's not necessarily a uh, positive signal for American military um, strategies around the world. But... Um, his principle was the 30 to 70 one. So if you know less than 30% of information about something that you want to do, you don't know enough and you need to go back and find out more. But if you wait until you know more than 70%, which is, let's be honest, most of us, most of us want to get to a point where we feel really sure we've checked everything. We feel above 70%, you're no longer in the innovation zone. You're no longer ahead of the curve. You're no longer you know, doing good work. You're, now you're slowing down. And I loved it, you know, because that means like fucking hell, 40%, I might have to go. 40%, God, I don't even know half what I should know. And then actually, if I know 60%, I'm, I'm nearing my limit. I need to move. I need to get this thing going. And one of the really useful ways to think about how you can act like that also comes from the uncertainty experts. And probably it's the most consistent piece of advice they gave. And it, it touches on that um, 
greatest fear is failure. Regret that we least want is missed opportunity. And, and this takes in on board actually lots of the things we've said, that idea of conviction, narrative theory, putting yourself into an emotional future state. And it's, it's simply this, and, and David, you would have heard it because it was Carl Loco who says it first, but many of them say it in their own different ways. So Carl Loco, this fairly legendary individual in, in his world, was involved in gangs as, as, as a teenager, although previously had quite a normal upbringing, um, you know, really supportive parents, was predicted university grades at, at school, but, you know, tragic murder of his friend leads him down a different path. Uh, he recovers that and is now runs a multi-million pound social investment fund for young black entrepreneurs, community leader, but the Markle's weddings, you know, is a high standing member of society. He describes it thus, when he was faced with the short term fears that presented themselves to him regularly on the streets, he would try and balance those out. And he, he describes it really honestly, really emotionally, the level of fear that he felt, how scared he was in this world that he inhabited. And so to make him not frozen by that fear, he would try to imagine the regret that he would have to suffer if he didn't face that fear. So if it was a fight or a conflict, the regret would be loss of standing. If it was an opportunity or a new market that he'd go into, if he didn't face it, the regret would be loss of revenue and status. And then he'd really go and hang out with that regret. Like he described, you know, the poison of regret he describes it as, and like you know, he'd stoke it up, like really roll around in how horrible that regret is going to feel. Like no one wants that regret. And once he'd done that work, you know, spending time in the emotions of it, and, and again, this backed up by all the stuff I've touched on. The brain doesn't know. If you really inhabit, you really role play, simulate well, the brain's like, God, I feel like a bit like I've experienced that. Like David in LA, like, hmm, okay, yeah, I can, I can feel what that's going to feel like. And then you come back and you reassess your short-term fear against the long-term regret. And this, for, for a creative listening to the show, suffering from the safety behavior of procrastination and distraction, you know, seeking to kind of find some balance in your day, Take two minutes out and really go and feel what it's going to be like to miss this deadline, to not, to not, to not publish, to not showcase, to not deliver the work, to, to not get it right, to, to waste the time, to, to miss, you know, to go beyond the 70%, whatever the, the potential regret is going to be, and really feel how that will be in your gut. And then bring that back to the, the fear. And I, I've never seen it yet that that doesn't put that fear into the perspective that it deserves and enable you to take it with you and then help it move you forward. I think that can really help with choice as well. I think I've said it to a lot of people now and it always seems to just trigger the right thing in them where if you say to someone, if you're stuck between choosing these different options, which one would you regret released? Which one, if you couldn't do that anymore, would you miss the most? It was put to me by someone who'd watched the show. Uh, annoyingly, I'm, you know, we're three weeks out from this thing going live. We did a pilot earlier in the year and the pilot had this astronomical, like success scientifically way beyond what any of us expected the, the the Catherine the lead scientist any of the academics from UCL me you know really fucking worked and we were all gobsmacked by it and so we're running it again and I'm now in this really terrifying place because uh Netflix have come aboard so I've got these incredible like creatives who are helping me make something of a production level way more than ever I, I thought. And I'm really enjoying that process. I've never made documentary before. So I'm, I'm learning an awful lot. But at the same time, ticket sales aren't what they quite were, what I want them to be. You know, there's, there's you know, good individual ticket sales. I've sold quite a few to some firms and I thought that would happen, but they've bought really small amounts. So rather than like, I was hoping, you know, Google might buy a hundred, they've bought 10. And because they want to see what it's like for next year, like TikTok have bought three, you know, <laughs> Lego have bought four. You're like, and they're like, this is great. Well, yeah, we want to sign big teams up to this next year, but we just need to see what it's like. So it's fair enough, right? Of course, I just, I just didn't see that step coming. So I'm really, really torn. 
because I've invested an awful lot in this thing, uh, to spend most of my time on marketing, like drum ups and ticket sales. And, and now I feel really split. My days have become very, very long. I feel really anxious. I feel like I'm not being a present parent. I feel, you know, I'm on the edge of getting ill. All those things that we've all been through, right, at the, at the cusp of the launch of a project. And I was confessing this to Raz, who's been on the journey with me, seen the, the, the preview a couple of times. He said, well, you have to ask yourself the same question. If you could only do one of those things, if you spend the next three weeks marketing and you hit your, you know, you got thousands of people there, but the content isn't what you want it to be, how are you going to feel? Or if you could spend the next few weeks only doing production, only refining the, the show, the scripts, the, what's going to be on screen, and there's no further tickets to sold, how are you going to feel? And you know how annoying it is when you're given your own fucking advice. <laughs> <laughs> but it was totally true. All right, yeah, fuck it. It's 100% clear where, where my priority is. This is about making something that works. This is about making something that moves people. It's about making something that helps people. And so every single thing that's on screen, every single word that's part of the script, that is what matters. And it being a good experience for a couple of hundred people, fuck it, that is what matters and that we can measure it. And from that, we can build something. And the horrible thought of regret of like, yeah, okay, you got several thousand people then, you know, every third frame is like a regret or the word that you wish you changed or the whatever, like, and, and it doesn't play forward. No, of course I don't want to be there. And so... Yeah, it was a very healthy reminder that's just been played out of me literally this weekend. And as I come into this week, you know, it's helped me massively with what was feeling daunting uh, because it's given me a really clear, clear priority. So when when does it launch and how can our listeners get involved and get a ticket? Uh, November the 9th, it's live. So it's a, a three episode series, November the 9th, 16th and 23rd of November. So three consecutive Tuesdays. There's three screening times every week to allow for different time zones and parenting and job patterns and whatever you want. So a morning and afternoon and an evening. Um, you need to show up for all three episodes. You can't be late. You need to do the work. You need to bring your mobile phone because you're going to interact through it. You need to bring your headphones because there's a whole neuroaesthetic soundscape that's been specifically designed to build empathy and increase focus. Um, there's lots of fun additional content that comes out in between. So like the full audio interviews with these incredible, extraordinary people releases podcasts. You don't have to engage with all that if you don't want to. And you have to complete about a 20 minute full scientific evaluation of your risk taking of your need for closure of your preferences for predictability of your discomfort with ambiguity. It's been put together by one of the PhDs from um, UCL. You need to do that before the series after the series, and then four weeks on from the series. And as a result of that, you'll be given a full, detailed, personalised profile of your um, uncertainty tolerance and what you can do to build it. And and that's it, really. Um, and if you go to uncertaintyexperts.com, you can buy a ticket. And if, if you'd like to, I'd very happily put up a Creative Rebels discount redemption code as, you know, in solidarity from one Creative Rebel to all the others out there, because this work seems to be really helping people. And if I can help you and your crew, then I'd love to. And how specifically would it help people? Because I think a lot of people will listen to that and be like, oh, that sounds interesting, but they're not put action in. And I think that's the biggest problem that people have is not actually going to put that action and realizing that by going and doing these things, you will come out the other side better. So the show is proven to increase your tolerance to uncertainty. And that has a profound effect on the human experience of the 21st century because uncertainty is shown to be the number one driver of anxiety. Like it sits behind exhaustion. It sits behind your indecision. It sits behind your fatigue. When we interviewed over 3,000 people on the negative impacts of uncertainty, all of the answers could be grouped into three categories. Fear, uncertainty drives us to feel fear and anxiety. Uh, fog, 
a lack of clarity, indecisiveness, not knowing what to do or where to go next, and then stasis, just that horrible stuck feeling of meh. And what we've shown is we've created a module, a, a course. We've presented it as a workshop, but it is interactive. You do have to answer questions and do some reflection as you go along with it. And we saw statistically significant, which is science speak for fucking hell, it really worked, um, on scores like open-mindedness, decisiveness, uh, preference for predictability, discomfort with ambiguity, need for closure, positive association with uh, uncertainty, and even risk-taking. So you put all of that together, and what the behavioural psychologists report, looking at all the qualitative data that we had, we showed an increase in people's ability for metacognition, that, that, that thought, thinking about your thought process, an increase in people's empathy, you know, so your emotional judgment and your ability to connect with other people. And finally, a reframing of fear. Now, that has profound effects on you as an individual, certainly as a, as a creative and entrepreneurial individual. But beyond that, it has uh, effects on communities and societies. Societies with low tolerance for uncertainty are more prone to um, conspiracy theories and populist politics. You know, societies and communities with high tolerance to uncertainty are going to survive the coming years far better because they're able to look after each other. Beyond that, even some research I was just sent this weekend shows economies are the same. Economies who are more risk averse, who tend back towards phrases like new normal and building back better and holding on to methods proven not to work are more likely to fail. Economies and businesses who are more able to take risks are more likely to succeed. So in every single one of these key metrics, all, all of you, all of us, are going into what's been labelled as the decade of disruption. You know, we've only just realised how close we were to a nuclear bloody war in the middle of January, but we were somewhat distracted from it because we were <laughs> facing a climate catastrophe, a social equality, you know, chaos and, and fucking pandemic. And, uh, you know, the crisis in a crisis in a crisis in a crisis that we're going to continue to face ain't going anywhere. Our need to survive and, and do good work in that, work that matters more than ever, work that contributes to the solutions more than ever is really necessary. And that's going to require a level of creativity that is pretty hard under that much uncertainty. So to turn uncertainty into a driver of creativity, that's what it seems that we are on the, on the foothills of being able to do. So, you know, it is still pretty experimental. Um, but if you want to come and get involved, see what some of that's about and, and help me. You know, I'm really, really open to the feedback and it's, it's, it's evolving on every single session that we run at the moment. And is there any kind of ages that this is aimed at? Because I feel like what you're talking about there should be taught to every single child. So we are we're giving free places away to young people through a number of different youth initiatives. So for every, every number of tickets that I'm selling, I've gone to Liberty, to another couple of young, you know, all young creative um, programs that I've mentored and, and supported. Because it, every, we all feel very, very strongly this has got a huge opportunity for young people. Um, there is a, you know, I'd give it a 15 rating probably because there is quite a lot of sensitive content in there mm -hmm. and you are doing quite a lot of tough and, and hard work. So I'd probably keep it above school age. Um, and then there's no upper age. It's it's probably one of the, the projects I've worked on. Most of my work has, has been consistently for and around young people. But from the pilot data, you know, the success... Um, you know, the big grouping was kind of 35 to 55 professionals. And, and all of the in interviews we did, they were the people to that earlier question who felt they had the most to lose through a period of uncertainty because their, their, you know, their, their world, their lives was becoming so under threat, you know, because we've all worked so hard this last, like, whatever part of our lives to get to this, you know, moment. 
And now the rug's kind of been pulled up from under it. You know, everything that we thought was going to be the trappings of success isn't there. You know, we know now that we're not really supposed to, you know, I was going through the jump report, we're not supposed to fly outside of once every three years. You know, that scuppers all the plans of my ideas of success and, you know, what life is going to look like. Our, our, our habits with with clo- our habits with everything fundamentally has to shift. And that's going to require a very different relationship with the changing life and times around us for, for, for very many of us. And, and that's such a huge shift that we've got to make internally that, that for many of us, I think it kind of shuts us down. So even just just a, just growing our ability to sit with that discomfort, that level of ambiguity, it's just going to be necessary to even enjoy the next few years at, at like a base level, let alone build beautiful things in it and try and you know come up with projects and, and initiatives that help communities, which I think is also going to, you know, I really do believe that the answers needed are not going to come from the places where they're used to. It's this, to get through this, the, the various messes that are coming, I think that, I actually think the startup world is going to provide so much of the answers that we're going to need because the systems that we've got are so ingrained to not break themselves. And why would they when they've supported, you know, a certain group for so so long? That's not even start casting aspersions. It's just the way things work. So I think this this world specifically, creative entrepreneurship, is fundamental to the big ideas that have to grow at scale over the next, you know, really four or five years. If if I look back at the time when I felt most lost was in my twenties, and I've spoken about it a lot on the show. I, I I would describe fear, fog, and stasis as the the like absolutely that that sums up my twenties. Those three words, fear, fog, and stasis, sum up my twenties completely. Um, and I think if anyone is feeling those, like if you can identify those in in whatever it is, I, I, especially the fog, man. Like I just not being able to see the wood for the trees just just you know that you want to do something but you and and like you kind of feel like you're you're put on the planet to do something like you've there's there's some sort of destiny but you have no fucking clue what it is um really stepping into that um i i think if there's if there are people that are feeling those i think this could be a really sort of worthwhile investment in themselves of of finding this out because for me, that was a that was a really long journey, and if I could do something that could um, expedite that when I was in my twenties, I like that would have been amazing. Well, that's that's what really struck me with the the feedback and what the pilot ran in May, and it's now mm, October, and there isn't there hasn't been a day pretty much where I haven't had somebody of the five hundred people that went through it explain to me what they've done as a result, and it's and it's typically somebody breaking through a moment of fear, fog, and stasis, and it's typically either someone breaking something that was toxic in their life that they didn't feel able to do, or taking a risk and starting something that they also hadn't been able to do because they've been mired in those feelings of fear, fog, and stasis, and yeah, yes, yeah, similar. And mine, mine wasn't so much age specific. Mine's just been every few years I find myself back there with a new project and that horrible feeling of oh my god, I'm here again, like in that. Uh, I think Adam, you were saying at the beginning that that, that, that description of um, is it Yates or Yeats? I can never remember. Calls negative capability that bit where you just don't know. There's more that you don't know than you do know, and I'm like here again. Oh fuck, you know I hate this bit, but I'm now more able to recognise that through this is where I'm going to learn. So, you know, then let's do it. I'll, I'll set up. I can go and do it now. I'll set up Creative Rebels uh, as a third off, let's say. And so anybody who is in this community and does want to invest in themselves, then come. But it's also worth noting that because I realized my year was you know, pretty dreadful financially and a lot of people has been. If there is a discount code at checkout for anyone who's a student, anyone who's unemployed, anyone who's just had a really hard financial time, 
um, uh, that you can use. I think it's got 80% off as well. So um, I want it to be as inclusive as possible. And I really do think from what I can see from the pilot, it really has helped people um, in, in these difficult moments. So uh, I don't want the cost to be a barrier, I think is what I'm saying. That's amazing, man. Um, what, what is the code for the 80% off if, if someone does need that? It's just cheers because I put it up originally just for, you know, and whether it be key workers or whoever else, you know, but we've all, we're all, you know, that horrible phrase that we're all That's in great. together. We're not, we're, we're all in some, we're all in something together going through it in incredibly different ways. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I've really benefited from some people's generosity and help and, and support getting this idea up and running. So you just got to pay these things forward, haven't you? And I think the idea of paying it forward is really important. Like if you go and do this course, pass it on to someone else because you can yeah. benefit someone else's life so significantly. Absolutely. And, th- and that, that thing, you know, I've been calling this a few times, you know, I just think we've got to trust people. You know, if you can afford it and things are going well, then put in Creative Rebels and come along. And if you can't, you're having a really tough time, then put in Cheers. And and we'll just trust one another that we're going to do it and do it well. And and that's one of the things I've really loved about my, you know, uh, new relationship with the scientific community. It's all open. Like the spirit is all open. Everything we're designing, the expectation is that you'll share everything. And it's really lovely. It's like very mm-hmm. unlike the worlds of business that I've been in where the the default is more, you know, we'll, we'll keep this idea and then we'll try to... to, to you know, monetize it in a way. And so it's really lovely. Yeah. So the spirit of openness of what we learn and what we'll share and what we'll give away, we'll be publishing it all. Um, and I want to run this a few times next year so that we can really prove the methodology with the ambition that once we've proven it, then then in theory, if we can make a documentary that has the kind of impacts that, that therapy can, then of course the, the, the plan will then be to like give that away, make it as global as we can, start running at a societal level. If I can continue to maintain the interest we've got from Netflix, what if we can maintain the kind of results that we've had so far on an on-platform proposition and we can start doing documentaries about different things with this level of interactivity that helps address people and give them a new attitude? I mean, fucking hell, that sounds fun. Amazing. Yeah, that's that's. I, I noticed when uh, when we first started talking, you, you spoke about sort of pandemic and and like, struggling for cash and whatever and then you then in the next breath you're like so i gave away a load of free mentoring to young people that needed it it's like um i think the it's something we talk about on this show a lot is like you can make an impact in the world but also earn enough from doing that to keep your lights on and and there's definitely a balance and i think people will see that and understand it and it's a it's a really good thing um because as soon as your bills are paid you're able to go and make more change in the world and i think that's a that's a good thing that I want our audience to really take away. The word that comes up a lot in all the uncertainty experts interviews is purpose. And I, and I, I waver around how, how much I rephrase some of that because I think purpose has been so diluted over the last few years um, that you've got to be cautious with it. But one of the bits of research that's really, really clear is purpose in terms of relation to sacrifice. And in, in teams and in individuals, in organisations, where there is a willingness, when people know that there is something that they deem as more important than themselves, when there is a, a, a willingness to put others' interests, if not before yours, then at least alongside yours, and a willingness to share. You know, sacrifice can sound a bit brutal, but to share in what we're doing. Um, those individuals, those organisations are measurably, clearly, you know, outperform over time on, on a range of life outcomes. So success, satisfaction, fulfilment, you know, those things are really, really important. They have to come from a genuine place. They can't be overlooked um, and, and shouldn't be misunderstood. Amazing. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for grilling me as well. Sometimes I've done a few podcasts and it's just, you know, it's, it's easy to, um, uh, there's so much about this project to say and I feel a bit like I've been put on my, uh, 
uh, put to test. So thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, dude. Thank you so much. Awesome.